cancer research in recent years is perhaps the most progressive it has ever been. At the heart of this is the National Cancer Institute at NIH, which leads and supports cancer research across the U.S. as the largest funder of cancer research in the world. It's no surprise the nation has seen declines in the rates of new cancer cases and cancer deaths overall in the past few decades. CIO Jeff Schilling has a personal motivation and technical responsibility for NCI's IT systems and services, which are critical toward these missions. You'll see his path to the Institute has always been rooted in health. In this episode, you'll hear from our guest host, President Mike Hoffman, with Schilling as they discuss NCI's precision medicine initiatives and the importance of NCI's data initiatives with parallels to other efforts across the country. Welcome to GovCast. This afternoon, we're lucky enough to be joined by Jeff Schilling. Jeff is the CIO and Infrastructure and IT Operations Branch Chief for the National Cancer Institute's Center for Biomedical Informatics and Information Technology. Jeff has had a storied career going back to working as a laboratory biologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He also had stops at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, where he provided IT services for the physics directorate. And before taking his current role, he was at the National Cancer Institute's Center for Cancer Research as the IT architect focused on translational research. Jeff, thanks for uh, taking the time to join us this afternoon. It's a pleasure. Well, what we'd like to do here at GovCast is really not only talk about some of the work that you're doing presently at the National Cancer Institute, but talk a little bit about your journey, what brought you to public service over at the Institute, and what motivated you to become a part of that. So I kind of would like to start there. What motivated you to get involved in a career connected to IT? For me, that's a great question because I was lucky enough to start in IT right when IT started to become a career. I was a laboratory technician, basically, and what that really meant was I worked in the lab, and it was something I really wanted to do my whole life. I love science, and I loved working in science, but I did have a problem, and that is, in biology, it takes a long time to actually make things happen. So... I just found it a little too slow, and I had this moment where the work we were performing, it had come to a conclusion, and we had basically the highest success you could. We had a nature paper, Nature's a Science Journal, and it was somewhat anticlimactic, I felt. So really what it meant, I was like, well, this is it. This is the peak. I really then started focusing on what am I going to do for the rest of my career? I had to make a choice. Do I really go more into science, become a PhD or go to graduate school somehow, or look for another field. And just at that time at the University of Wisconsin, the university was moving off of a baseband network. So we used to run the whole network on cable TV, basically. And it was very, very, very inefficient. So the network was upgraded to fiber. And what they did is the university enlisted staff to become the network admins that they would need all around campus. Mm -hmm. So I took that little bit of training. And I don't know if it was just me or the timing, but it suited me perfectly. I was able to understand what they said and do all that work. And I was also able to translate that information into my laboratory setting. And so I really, at that point, just started to digest as much information as I possibly could. And, you know, this is pre-web. Mm -hmm. So... There was the internet, but really the only thing you could do is send an email. There wasn't even any forums or chats even at that time, although I think there might have been AOL. 
I was able to make the transition from being a, a biologist to being an IT person at that time. I was maybe 26 years old, I think, 27. What was your focus as a biologist? You first got involved in that. Can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to get into biology and what your focus was there? Well, I had the great fortune to take a job as an undergraduate in McArdle Cancer Research Laboratory at University of Wisconsin. And I was in a lab and I had graduate students that I worked with. And those graduate students really kind of guided me into this is what you would want to do if you have a life in science. These are the pitfalls. These are the difficulties. Really just being in the lab was the main thing. I think you're so young in your career and there's so much to know that it's a great learning experience. You can't really do it in the classroom. It was always kind of about being in the lab and understanding how biology worked by doing experiments and then understanding it and having maybe explained to you or researching it more exactly what was going on. Not always about that specific thing you were doing, but just in general. And so I was always a much more hands-on learner. And I think that's why IT became much easier to learn because you could actually do so much more hands-on, whether it was setting up networks or working on computers directly or troubleshooting computers or developing software. Mm -hmm. So cancer research was a passion from the very beginning. What motivated you to get into cancer research? You know, at that time, cancer was thought of very differently. This is the early 80s, very differently than it is today. There was kind of a model of initiation and promotion and you know, DNA had been discovered. And so they knew it was a very genomic driven disease. Mm -hmm. And they had some insights into when these genes get activated or deactivated, that is bad. And cells will start to grow incorrectly. Mm -hmm. But that was all they really knew. They knew viruses caused cancer. This is even pre HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. So there was so much really unknown compared to what we know today. We still don't know so much, but the amount that's known is vast. Okay. What do you think was a major leap forward? I know I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit in terms of our interview here, but you bring up a good point of how that has transpired with cancer research. What has ushered in some of these major leaps forward for cancer research to make that change? Well, there are a lot of things in place. I mean, I think about this a lot. My wife is a PhD oncologist and So while she's often thinking about the deeper science, I'll often think about the environment of science. And I think about it a lot in its relation to information technology and informatics, and we have AI today and all kinds of machine learning. But really, the nation in 1971 made a massive investment in cancer research. President Nixon basically declared war on cancer. You can see it on my badge. I have 1971 badge. And that was really to let our staff know that they're soldiers in the fight against cancer. And so that really ushered in a new dynamic in terms of we have cancer centers that are focused on basic research and clinical research. We have all the universities training undergraduates, graduate students, PhDs, MDs, not just in the United States, but really even worldwide, in order to try to understand the complexity of the condition that we cause cancer. Because it's really now thought to be over a thousand different diseases in terms of how it manifests itself. And so 
it required the massive brain power that the country dedicated to that. I think that's really it. The funding, but you know, any one year of funding, higher or lower, doesn't really matter. It's really the 20 years it takes to create a scientist. You mentioned some of the emerging technologies that have come out there. You mentioned machine learning, AI. How have you seen over your career from the beginning to now the utilization of some of these technology methods towards the research? Well, this is the question, right? We jumped right into it. (laughs) Good, good. I I think we can really look at the whole breadth of everything that's going on. I think the machine learning and the artificial intelligence, that's really just now coming into its own and really being utilized around the medical record information. So I'll get into that a little bit. But I would say I really wanted to start off this information to say it's really the vendors that are producing machines where all the fascinating work is being done. And that's around MRIs, CAT scans, PET scans, having those machines merge together. We have a lot of scientists who are working on algorithms for AI for that image analysis. They can see, has your tumor actually shrunk? Yeah, is that tumor getting smaller? That's an interesting part of it. A lot of people think of the data, but the imagery analysis is an important part of it. If we really look at that, I would say most of our data work is done on really two fronts. It's done around genomics. So we're really looking at the genome itself or the expression of the genome, which I can go into a little bit, or we're looking at imaging. Most of the IT, the informatics work is done around those two areas. We are really more focused on the discovery and really trying to understand what cancer is. So the government has put a big effort forward with something called the Precision Medicine Initiative. And that is really focused on your cancer as being unique to you. So from a definition of cancer and from a treatment of cancer, that's a very powerful model. Mm -hmm. Because again, your cancer is progressive. That means you have multiple, let's say, generations of that cancer inside of you. You have the very first part, and then you have the more advanced part, and then you have the part maybe that can spread throughout your whole body. Or maybe you don't have that part yet. But it's somewhat unique to you. You have a set of mutations or a set of genomic anomalies that make up your cancer uniquely. But one of the things that's difficult in that model is that that is really not how drugs are approved. Drugs are approved around a disease, and then does that drug work to control that disease or cure that disease or prevent that disease? And what are the side effects of that drug? But now, if I just say your disease is unique to you, how do I know what drug to use? And how do I approve that drug? And so the NCI is working with the FDA very closely on these trials we generally call match trials. Mm -hmm. We use a set of genetic tests to determine your tumor types. And then you go into a very special treatment that's unique to you with a mixed set of solutions. So we don't just give you one drug, it might give you five drugs. We might give you radiation and these other four drugs. Mix and match. Right. And then we say, what happened? You can almost start to tie these patterns and then use those patterns with these solutions. That does have some pattern matching and machine learning, and and then the doctors are presented with a set of recommendations by the computer. The computer says, oh, I've seen Jeff, and he has this cancer type, and we recommend you treat him this way. 
for this long. And then the doctors look over that recommendation and they make a final decision. Mm -hmm. They'll get together and make a final decision on what's called an arm that that patient should go in on, a treatment arm. Okay. How does that feedback maybe change the care? We're talking about precision medicine here. How does that tailoring really take it to the next level? Is it really just about making it specific to that person versus here's a general way of approaching it, like you said, to make it more effective? It really is. It really is exactly what you would say. I mean, just like we might all have a different diet or a different exercise routine to stay in shape. Uh, Some people like to run. Some people like to bike. Some people like to go to the gym. Life is unique for each one of us. And as medicine progresses and understands that, it makes a lot of sense that we would have that information in a package of solutions for diseases like cancer, but it it could also be even prevention of cancer. As we can then predict like, well, you have these 52, and I'm just making that up, you have these 52 genetic unique characteristics. That means you're very sensitive to the sun. That's a good example for me. Skin cancer is prevalent through the uh, Hoffman family. Right. So there's certainly, I'm sure, ways in which I can attack that. Right. You can do it in your lifestyle change. You can always wear long sleeves. You can always wear a hat. You can always wear sunscreen. But you can also go to the dermatologist more often. Yeah. You can be more concerned when you see something like, oh, I don't like the way this mole looks exactly, mm-hmm. versus someone who has no history of skin cancer in their family. But you can see that's a subjective analysis done by you. And many people maybe don't do that if the prevalence isn't that high or they can't really see the correlation between those things. And also because, you know, how we are a mixture of different families always, you don't always understand the history of your relatives. Mm -hmm. So certainly the country is going much more towards prevention and trying to understand a genetic basis for the right prevention, let's call it recipe. You mentioned on one hand you have the precision medicine portion of it, and then the other portion is the genetic part where machine learning and AI can really step in and maybe predict. Am I overstating that of, hey, this person has a much higher likelihood of having certain cancers? How do the new technologies play within that realm? First, I guess I would like to describe really what's going on. And so we generally don't have an FDA-approved way to do DNA analysis on you. You know, we have maybe companies like 23andMe will do some type of analysis, but you can't go to your doctor and say, hey, please screen me for the cancer profile 101. Mm -hmm. We don't have such a thing. And so there is work to develop that. If we can look at these markers, we can get a better understanding of your risk profile and maybe guide you through your journey. But of course you'd say, well, do we even know that information? Really, we don't. There's several studies being created. NIH has a large study called All of Us. NCI has another large cohort study where we're really working with healthy participants, gathering information from them. Every time they go to the doctor, their information will be put into this clinical trial. Mm -hmm. And then some of them we know will develop cancer they will have all that information from maybe when they were 20 years old to now they're 65 years old and they develop leukemia. Well, 
was there some event that happened, mm -hmm. right? We have their cells in a freezer. We can do this type of analysis to say, oh, this happened when they were this age, or is it just a slow accumulation? So we can really get a better understanding of not just what cancer is, but how is it that some people get it and other people don't? It's interesting. We learned a little bit about the Million Veterans Program as well. That's another initiative right now in terms of collecting data, taking a look at not only the genetics, but also the way that they've been treated within the VA portion. That was going to be one of my questions. I think you've kind of answered it already, though, but these large data collection efforts seem to have an enormous opportunity being able to process that data to get a good idea of causation. Right. For cancer, it's an accumulation of these genetic changes generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can't really look at the time you have cancer. You've already accumulated all those. But how did that happen? Is there anything we could have done to prevent that? But I really would also say there's a lot more people more qualified than I to talk about some of these things, right? What we really do in our group, the Center for Biomedical Informatics and Information Technology, is we're bringing in the IT and the informatics support to all the basic and the clinical researchers, but also to all the staff that are supporting the grants that is the bulk of really NCI's portfolio. Mm -hmm. So we talked about precision medicine. We talked a little bit about some of the data efforts. Are there other projects that you're excited about right now over at National Cancer Institute when it comes to utilizing some of these technologies? Oh, sure. Lots, okay. of course. Let's so, pick two favorites. <laughs> well, so um, uh, I could say that we have a project that was created maybe five years ago. We call it the cloud pilots. Okay. And now we call it the cloud resources. So basically what we had is a technical problem. We had a lot of reference data. What that means is we call it the Cancer Genome Atlas, but it was a whole set of sequencing data, genomic sequencing data, mm -hmm. around different cancers. Yeah. So that means these are somewhat signatures in a way, very crude maps about this person has this cancer and this is what their genomic profile looks like. And there's several different types of analysis in there, but that data is large, multiple petabytes. Mm -hmm. And so... What the scientists were trying to do was say, oh, I have this set of patients or I have a case. I want to compare it against the atlas. Hmm. And so what the cloud resources do is they moved all this reference data into the cloud. Hmm. Otherwise, people would have to download that reference data and also keep it updated at each of their institutions, which is many, as yeah. you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Another thing is that if you think about what National Cancer Institute is, it's really a data generation so it generates data. It uses that data to create knowledge and to create theories and to test those theories and then to move the field forward that way. And right now, we're really just at the very beginning of trying to standardize those data sets across the whole research community. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to standardize data if the field for that data is not very mature. So... Some fields are very, very complex. Like, for example, we know that if we take a picture with our phone that goes into our library and we're fine, and we say, oh, it got date stamped, it got geolocated, so I know where I took this photo. But then what if I want to know, well, how many pixels are in that photo? There might be more and more information, more and more information. And we really, while that information is recorded on each photo, we don't have a whole database to say, show me all the nighttime photos I took when I was in Florida. 
we'd have to kind of extract that from the data. Mm -hmm. So really what we're trying to do is now create in this cancer research data commons project that we're doing is to create some of these standards. Genomics is very simple. There's really four letters, four bases that make up your genome. And so it's kind of a two-dimensional thing. I mean, you have chromosomes that it sits on, so there's some more information. There's also the complexity around how you generated that information because mm. the sequencing is quite a sophisticated technology and it's not 100% accurate normally. You can go and analyze certain sections and be very accurate. But for us, we're more looking for needles in a haystack kind of model. So we're sifting really quickly in, in the genomics that we do. Mm -hmm. You have to really understand what machine you use to do the sequencing, what protocol you use to the sequencing. How did you verify that the cells you pulled out really were from the organ you pulled them out. When you pulled them out, did you put them right on ice? Did you freeze them right away? How did you treat them? So one of the ways to do DNA sequencing is to not actually sequence the DNA itself, but to sequence something called RNA, which is what is an expression of the DNA to create the protein. And so if we sequence the RNA, it's a little closer to saying, well, the DNA was actually being expressed, so I just want to sequence that, and I want to look for any mutations there or any anomalies there. Mm -hmm. But RNA only exists for a brief period of time. So if you don't treat those cells a certain way, that RNA will give you a false reading. And so you have to know that information. So now we can imagine ourselves 30 years from now, we want to look back at some samples and we'd say, oh my gosh, they didn't collect any of the information we really need to make the sophisticated decisions we need to make 30 years from today. So I mean, you can imagine going back 30 years and looking at even the cars we drive, even how the world is, right? No phones, barely any computers, right? No internet, hardly. No web, that's for sure. No. How did they do research back then? <laughs> yeah. I would say that's what we're really excited about, I would say, is really knowing enough about the data so we can create these data standards and save this data for the future research when it really will be very, very valuable. You mentioned 23andMe. How have companies like those who are collecting a lot of data and being a part of it, how is that going to trend? Does the National Cancer Institute get to benefit from a lot of that data from companies like that? Or has that even changed the perception of sharing data? You know, people are thinking, okay, I'd like to share my data with, you know, 23andMe, for instance. Maybe when my doctor asks for it connected to a program with the National Cancer Institute, it's a little bit more normalized. It's not as jarring, potentially. Right. So that's a great question that will not have a great answer. We take all types of answers here at CovCast. Remember I mentioned to you about the FDA approved and not FDA approved. Mm -hmm. So your doctor just can't use something like 23andMe because it hasn't gone through the approval process of the FDA to say, you know, when you go to a, lab, a laboratory, like you go to see your doctor and your doctor says, please go to this lab and get a blood draw and do a test. Mm -hmm. That laboratory is under something called CLIA certification. They are audited to ensure that they're keeping your sample separate and all their machines are actually producing verifiable results. Mm. When you send your sample away to one of these testing labs, you don't even know what they're no doing. No help. Okay. Yeah, you don't know what they're, what if it's got your samples mixed up or what if there's an accuracy or, so the FDA is very, very sophisticated in how it ensures that the medicine and the medical treatments we're getting provided, they actually work. Yeah. Well, how about the security of the data? You know, cybersecurity is a very hot topic and we're talking about data and the importance it could do to something as big as a cancer cure. How does that play into the security of the data, you know, avoiding anything, you know, maybe 
affecting that data? It's a big piece of it. So we have the HIPAA law in place, which really ensures that when you get medical treatment, your records are kept there. Mm -hmm. But that means your records aren't kept with you. They're kept with where you got treated. Mm -hmm. So your general practitioner's records are with your GP. Your oncologist records are with your oncologist. Your radiologist records are with your radiologist if they're at different practices. And so for oncology, it's a very difficult thing to have this privacy. I mean, you can sign off and say, please share my data. But what does that mean exactly? There's really no clearinghouse for data sharing for doctors currently. So I think on the medical side, there's still a long way to go in the care continuum for balancing privacy and the best treatment possible. Because the best treatment possible requires data sharing. Mm -hmm. But we don't really have the infrastructure to do that. We don't, let's say, have a private medical internet. No, I go on the medical internet. Only doctors are allowed on that. Doctors and patients or, you know, things like that. We don't really have that yet. And so it's not really clear what's going to happen. We know there are massive institutions working on this. The VA has many, many projects associated with this, as well as DHA, Defense Health Agency. You got it. We've worked a lot with those groups and a lot of the things that they're trying to do to help the soldiers and the veterans as they come back and they're in different cities and their care needs to be shared, whether they're seeing their own private doctor or a VA doctor. Mm -hmm. I have a two-part question. We're going to go back to you for a second here. What motivated you to get into the public sector spot? So, you know, what motivated you to get working with the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and then eventually the National Cancer Institute? And then two, how can agencies like the National Cancer Institute continue to motivate young people to want to follow a similar path that you did? Well, that's a good question. I would say there's no grand plan I had for where I am or what I wanted to do. I really always wanted to work in science. So I feel very comfortable there. I love learning new things. So IT and science is great. My wife was a scientist, so scientists have to move around. Mm -hmm. You get your PhD one place, you have to do a postdoc in another place. And so really, by the time my wife graduated from graduate school, I was already in IT, then I could really go anywhere. Okay. So she took a position in Roger Weissman's lab at National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. And actually there, they were the group that located BRCA1, the breast cancer gene. So that was very kind of famous for them and wow. very famous for the Institute. So it was really, I would say, probably the culture that really fit me the best. I've been asked sometimes to say, well, Jeff, you've gone from basically just being a lab guy to just being an IT technician. How did you kind of get to be the CAO? Well, one thing is I know the business. That's a big thing for me. So I understand what it is like to do research since I've been doing or at least participating in research since I was an undergraduate. I saw how much work it took for the scientists, how they have to work so many long hours, how they have to really do things that most people don't do. And that is that they really have to probe the unknown. Most of us do not do that. Most of us are in IT. We live in the known. We understand that when I hit this button, this computer turns on. Scientists are really able to, and they're trained, 
but they're also able to do this where they're able to kind of suspend reality and imagine what could be and then create a hypothesis around why are we seeing what we're seeing and how can I test that? Mm -hmm. And sometimes those hypotheses are so complex or the models they use to test them are so complex, it could take a decade to do those tests. And so I would say that that constant learning and not really knowing what the truth is, is something I like. The whole world is very subtle, right, around us. It maybe seems so solid and stable, but in reality, it kind of isn't. Every day is a little different. And so I would say that the excitement of working at these organizations, working at the NIH is very, very exciting. If you're interested in getting down and working with the scientists, super interesting. I mean, sometimes I refer to, I told you the Center for Cancer Research, I just said it's the greatest show on earth. You're never going to meet more smart people, more dedicated people, genuinely nice people who are really focused their whole life on this pursuit. And there's so many of them, and they're very grateful for any help that you can provide them. Well, you said it almost, you know, talking to you a little bit here, like we're just over the horizon from even more exciting discoveries. What are those next steps? What gives you hope to kind of have that feeling of we're right, we're almost able to reach out to some really impactful moments? Well, I think if we look at it from several different perspectives, that can answer that question. So one is we understand what cancer is a lot more closely. So we're able to also fairly inexpensively find that out. So genetic sequencing is much more inexpensive. Mm -hmm. Imaging is much more inexpensive. So that means we can actually determine what disease you have. That's doable. The second thing is we have so many treatments today, and especially with the advent of this fourth modality, this immunotherapy. We know, and there was lots of theories for a long, long time, that your body is actually killing cancer. You don't even know that. And so it's been learned that cancer actually turns off your immune system. It has to do that. It's very sophisticated how it works. And so if we can override cancer's ability to do that, your body will just attack that. And the work going on that is nothing short of miraculous. And again, whole careers devoted to that work. Wow. But, and I would say that, and along with our ability to now process large amounts of data. So genomic data is large. Imaging data is large. There's a lot of patients. And so being able to do that cheaply, I think adding those three things together that we have, understand cancer enough, we can detect it at the right level of detail. Mm -hmm. We have some treatments, significant amount of treatments, and then we can then process that information now effectively. We have cloud computing. We have supercomputing. We're getting the data in order enough to be able to do that. I think we're running out of time here, but I guess the last question I had is, what are you most excited about at the National Cancer Institute right now in terms of, we just touched on it, like over that horizon of those next impacts, but what gets you most excited about working over at the National Cancer Institute right now and what could be accomplished here in the next couple of years? Well, for me, that's almost a trick question because I'm excited about a lot of things, but since we've talked a lot about biology and cancer biology, I think it would be good to go back and talk about all the IT work we're doing. If my staff listened to this, they would say, you, you didn't talk about anything we do. We can definitely <laughs> hit some of those things, certainly. So I would say I'm very excited about 
our strategic planning process. Mm -hmm. So when I came into the central IT group from the Center for Cancer Research, one of the reasons I did that was the IT wasn't aligned close enough with the mission of the Institute. And what that really meant was that IT was being done kind of for IT's sake, maybe worrying about federal regulations or federal rules. But really, the National Cancer Institute exists in order to understand and research cancer, to really make a federal front for this war on cancer. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to align the IT to that. And it took me several years to get people to think about their work differently, that it wasn't about making just sure the storage arrays were up and running, but really working with the scientists and even all the administrative staff and aligning that work that it's not just a matter of getting this technology functional, but the technology has to be explained and really be functional for the people doing the work. Mm -hmm. And so that is, to me, my legacy for the National Cancer Institute is to develop the strategic planning process so that we can really align all, you know, there's unlimited technology we could use, right? Whether it's cloud computing or supercomputing or high performance computing or fast data storage, but there's a gap between the people doing the scientific work and their ability to consume of that information, consume of that technology. And so it's really to say, if we have all this technology and we have all this work to do, our strategic plan knits that together and says, where do we have gaps to making ourselves more efficient? Do we need to buy more technology? Do we develop more training? Do we need to create use cases to show how people are doing it, people who are using this technology, how they're successful? But can we also say, is the makeup of our scientists need to change? Do we need more data scientists? Do we need more statisticians? How much data do we save? Mm -hmm. What's valuable data? What's invaluable data? Because it costs the exact same amount to store it. Yeah. It doesn't cost any more to store valuable data than invaluable data. So that means we're for every piece of invaluable data we're storing, we're kind of using some of our funding. Right. So that's not good. So when I'm clearing out my uh, iPhone because I have run out of space, it's yes. kind of almost the same idea, right? <laughs> right. But, but you make a decision, right? Don't yeah. need that picture. Don't need that Don't picture. Don't need that video. Yeah. Right. Well, now imagine that your professional photographer taker, right? Your professional photographer. Yeah. The last thing the professional photographer wants to do is clean out their f images. They want to take photos. Scientists want to take photos. Scientists want to gather new data. They have no time to clean out the old data. So us trying to automate that is a perfect example of how we can not spend money storing information that's not needed, but how do we know it's not needed? Well, we want to do that automatically. So it's that strategic planning process that really helps us get to identify those gaps and how can we address some of these things as we really move to this digital age. Yeah. Okay. One of the questions, too, I wanted to ask is we've talked so much about data and just the importance of it. How is this strategic plan and how does some of these moving forward within IT make it easier to collect that data? Well... That's a huge question, right? So what we do is we have to understand most of the data comes from machines. Mm -hmm. So you take a biological thing like your blood or some cells, they're processed a certain amount, that process is under a very controlled conditions, and then the machine then analyzes those biological components and then generates a digital version of that. So one thing is to understand is, well, where is the actual data? 
what is the base data? And we would probably say, well, it's actually the cells or the blood sample itself mm -hmm. is the true reference, the true data. The rest is a processing of that data. It's always processed by an understandable model. We process that data. We might freeze the cells. We might use these chemicals to extract the DNA. But that's because we know what DNA is. What if there's particles that we didn't know about? So then those particles are lost. So that information would then be lost, right? And we, then we do the sequencing. It's like, well, this is what the genomic sequence is. It's like, well, actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. We know that's going to happen in the future. Okay. Because we know that if we look in the past, there were so many things we didn't know that we now know today. And those samples of the past or that data of the past is biased by that knowledge, right? So really, I think it's really that. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for joining us today. We've learned a ton about what's going on at the National Cancer Institute, especially what's going on from a technology perspective. And I'm really excited to see what's going to come next from NCI. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced and hosted by Amy Kluber. Edited by Chris Edwards. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. Sponsor